Okay. okay. Yeah, let's let's are, begin this story. We are now in history. We're being Okay. <laughs> we are here live and the story begins. Chapter 34, page 378. Last week's chapter. Oh, there we go. Uh, hopefully. Is he on? Sure. Okay. Last week's. I'm so tempted to wait. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Takes a moment to connect. So, last week's chapter was chapter 33. And j- just to recap on the sequence of things, what's been going on the past several chapters. We segued into the topic of joy, the importance of experiencing joy, and the way we experience joy is by making a paradigm shift in our perspective on life, on our perspective of ourselves, shifting from the body perspective to the soul perspective. Making that shift is the epitome of joy because the soul is joyful. The body is always wanting more and more and more, but the soul is can experience a greater depth in life beyond acquiring physical possessions and filling its physical lusts and desires. So real joy comes from the soul. And that's why we said when we make that paradigm shift, when we experience joy, we can get along with people better. Because when I'm look, living life from the soul perspective, how do I see other people? I see a soul. If I can go beyond myself, develop a deeper sense of self, I could appreciate a deeper sense of self within others as well. We then said in chapter 33 that this experience of joy is not an out-of-body experience, but it's actually an in-body way of life. We gave the... so and, and the meditation we provided, meditate on the greatness of God, meditate on the relevance of God. Right? The whole novelty of Abraham as introducing monotheism is not just that God is one, but it's that God is relevant. Because he's the only one. When we feel that God is the only one and everything is an expression of him, we automatically feel close to him. And we're gladdened with the opportunity to be able to house him in our lives. And God says, no, I don't want you to come to my palace. I don't want you to come to heaven. I want you to bring me to earth. I want you to make your homes a place where I feel comfortable. Your hearts and minds, a place where I can dwell comfortably. To make this world a place where I can dwell comfortably. And this is essentially what the coming of Mashiach is all about on a uh, microcosmic level, on on an individual level. Mm -hmm. Because the prophet Isaiah prophesizes, and Maimonides brings this in his halachic ruling, where he discusses the coming of Mashiach. That when Mashiach comes, the world will know God. We'll have a personal, meaningful relationship with God. And when we experience that on a personal level, that's our personal 
redemption. And when the world experiences that on a global level, that's going to be the ultimate redemption, the coming of Mashiach. That's where we left off. That's just the, re- the recap. We're with, you're with me? We're all on the boat still, right? Yeah. Mike, raise your hand if you're with us. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> He's Can not here. I'm, Is he I'm, there? I'm on my phone, but I'm He's still rebooting. I'm, I'm having technical oh. difficulties. The, as long Mike, as you can, yeah, it's perfect. Mike, raise your hand if you could hear us. <laughs> can, can you not hear me right now? No, we hear you. I'm, I'm just teasing. Oh, I'm, I'm messing with you. <laughs> All right. You should be able to give thumbs up and clap your hands. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Okay. So now in our chapter, we have this joy. We have this experience. And what our chapter is going to discuss is uh, our chapter is going to challenge us to take this joy this experience, this inspiration, and manifest it in something practical. So there's not just a joyous soul, but it's grounded in a body. The experience we described, this feeling of closeness with God, is a very lofty level. It's really a lot to expect. It's so much more fun to talk about than to implement (laughs) It's so much easier to talk about than it is to implement. It's easier to learn it in Tanya, to feel good about it, but then try waking up the next morning on time to daven. And it's, uh, it's, it, it's challenging. Our patriarchs lived this. right? For us, it's an experience. We study it, and maybe on Yom Kippur we're inspired, or at other occasions we're inspired. For us, it's an experience. For our patriarchs, it was really a way of life. This feeling of closeness with God whenever and wherever they are, it was, it was really their lifestyle. Um, that's why the patriarchs were referred to as a Merkava, which means a chariot. They had total bittel. To us, we have bittel sometimes when we're feeling it. <laughs> Right, nor, normal people have bitzel, which means feel like they want to be part of something larger than themselves when they're feeling it, when we're inspired, when we're in the mood. And when we're not in the mood, we want to do what we want. But the patriarchs felt, and that's very normal because we're just, we're humans. And if you feel that way, good. That's why we're here. We're here to study, we're here to learn, we're here to grow. Um, but the patriarchs didn't have that challenge. They didn't have to learn Tanya. The patriarchs didn't need the Tanya. They had that bit. It wasn't an inspiration. It was a way of life. They were called a chariot because a chariot goes where the rider wants it to go. It just follows what it's told, naturally. A patriarch can do that. A tzaddik can do that. I'll tell you a story. The Rebbe Rashab, Rabbi Shalom Ber, Shalom Dov Ber, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. He was young. I don't remember what age. But he was young. And he was washing his hands for bread. And there's different customs as to how to wash the hands. Normally we do three hands on each time before washing for bread. One, two, three, one, two, three. There are traditions. This is more common in the Ashkenazic world. To do two hands. Two, two um, splashes of water on each hand. So he was washing for bread, 
he did three times. And there was somebody there unfamiliar with that custom because their custom was to do it twice. So he says to the Rebbe Rashab, who was a young lad at the time, how did you, what, what is the source? What is the halachic source? Where did you read that you're supposed to wash three times, not twice? Are you sure you're doing it right? He was unfamiliar with the custom. So he says, I don't remember the source exactly at this moment, but I guarantee you it's the right thing. He says, I don't mean this arrogantly, I'm paraphrasing. He says, but the fact that I'm doing it is an indication that it's right because ever since I was before Bar Mitzvah, he says, I trained myself to instinctively follow the code of Jewish law and to follow the laws of the Torah. So I'm instinctively washing three times because there is a source. I, and I'll, I'll get it for you at some point. The reason why I bring this story is because patriarchs, sages, tzaddikim, and holy people, abnormal people, have total bitzel. The experience and closeness to God, the feeling that they are ambassadors for God wherever they are, the total bitzel, that's just the way of life. To us, it's an experience. Um, you know when we really experienced this? When did we really have this ultimate experience in history? When we really had this experience was when we received the Torah on Mount Sinai. What happened when the Jews received the Torah on Mount Sinai? It was too much for us. Too much, right? Too much to handle. So what happened was, right on the bottom of 379, but the Israelites at Sinai were unable to withstand it, were unable to withstand the revelation that took place. As our sages of blessed memory, top of 380 taught, that at every divine utterance, their souls flew away. So what happened was God uttered the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. Who took, and every time that God kept uttering those uh, those commandments, their souls expired. They couldn't handle the experience. At some point, they said to Moses, Moses, we can't handle this anymore. Why don't you hear it from God and you'll just tell it to us? And that's why we only heard the two first utterances from God. The reason why we couldn't handle it, it was this bittle. We were not on the level that we, we, we were just not wired for this type of bittle. We weren't ready for it. So what do we do? What do we do in order to ex um, make this experience a way of life, not just an inspir a fleeting inspiration? So right after the giving of the Torah, which the giving of the Torah was an incredible revelation, we couldn't handle it. So the very one of the very first commandments after the giving of the Torah is to build a home for God, to build the Mishkan. You know what a Mishkan is? It's a tabernacle. 
That makes it more clear. No, I'm <laughs> Can you describe precisely how to create that tabernacle in ten words or less? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's volumes written about it. Yeah, exactly. But God makes a Mishkan. A Mishkan translates as a home. God says, I need you to build me a Mishkan in which I'm going to dwell. Because you can't handle this revelation on a personal level. Our soul kept expiring. So build the Mishkan and that's going to house me through the various services. And that's going to be where I dwell in this world. Okay. So now we have somewhere to actually take that inspiration, that revelation, and ground it where we can go to the Mishkan and through the various services, we can experience this revelation in a way that is meaningful rather than just um, overwhelming. Later on, about a hundreds of years later, when the Jews finally made it to Israel, they actually built a permanent Mishkan, the Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem, where God dwelled permanently. Where we came, and that's why there was miracles taking place in the Beit HaMikdash, because it was not just a physical structure, it was a holy place that contained the Divine Presence. Now, the Beit HaMikdash got destroyed. Now what? No what do we do? Place for Hashem. How do we dwell? So where does God dwell now? Why why don't we make another Mishkan? That's also a good question. Uh, why don't we just Mashiach be, comes. when Mashiach comes, we're gonna have a Mishkan. If you in your on your next trip to Israel, there's a fascinating museum in the old city called the Temple Institute. And they have an altar built. They have all these things built, all the vessels built, and they're ready. It's not that far from the from the location. They're ready to wheel it in. Okay. They're ready. They have architectural plans for the third base of Mikdash with underground parking and transportation. It's a fascinating place. Never going to happen. <laughs> they're not going to do it. The old place it, is better. <laughs> it's, 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 no, it's Mashiach's going to come soon, and, mm-hmm. but, but, and, and we're going we're gonna to do this. So how, how do the current architects know that we're going to need like space for cars as opposed to airplanes? Okay. <laughs> or chariots. Maybe we're going to go back to chariots. Because she's going to come the, any moment now. They're, exactly. They're living with the times. <laughs> but isn't, isn't everybody's houses the Mishkan? They everybody's. So, so good, good point. So these days, we don't have the base of Mikdash. We have to create our own personal base of Mikdash. Yeah. Our own personal home for God. We have to take this inspiration based on the meditation we described last week. The joy, the power, the energy, the meaningful personal relationship with God that we're experiencing. We have to take that energy, that inspiration and manifest it in somewhere practical. And here's what it says. Um, the bottom of 380. Bottom of 380 where it says the first of Adar. It's the second to last. It's, it's the last bold paragraph. 
And since the Holy Temple was destroyed, the Blessed Holy One God has had no dwelling place in His world for His oneness, no firm place for His resting, other than the four cubits of Jewish law. That's what the Talmud says. Now, in other words, now that the base of Mikdash is destroyed, His new home is a portable home, one that we can take with us wherever we go. The Torah. Studying Torah since the laws which have been codified to us express God's will and wisdom. So the Torah, what is the Torah? It's God's will. The mitzvahs are what he wants. The Torah is describing what he wants, explaining what he wants. It is four cubits about the length of the scroll? No, it doesn't mean four cubits in, in a literal sense. It means in the more... Just that area of Torah study becomes a holy place. Those four cubits is an expression used often as just in close proximity to. Hmm. Oh, it's like an idiomatic? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The whole shebang. Yeah, exactly. The whole Megillah. (laughs) The whole Megillah. Um, So these days, we don't have the Mishkan. The Beis Amikdash was destroyed. And while we mourn the destruction of the base of Mikdash every year and hope for its rebuilding, we take that as an opportunity. This is an incredible paradigm shift in how Tanya, how Hasidic wisdom views exile. It's not a time to mourn or not only to mourn. It's an opportunity. Now that there's no base of Mikdash, where is God going to dwell? Wherever we want him to, through the study of Torah. Somebody asked once. Somebody once asked the Katsker Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Katsk, "Where is God?" He responded very sharply, "Wherever you allow him to be, that's where he will be." We have the opportunity through Torah study to bring God. Wherever we are. Because the Torah is explaining God's will. God's will is Him. His mitzvahs. And we're bringing that wherever we are. Into our minds. In uh, Reflecting back on, on chapter 4 of Tanya. We gave an analogy. Because, you know, sometimes you read ideas in the Torah and how is that God? (laughs) It seems very far removed from God. It seems, you know, random laws in the Torah, an ox scores a cow. You know, there's a lot of values which we do see as godly, but then there's a lot of things which seem very random. But it's describing God's will. It's him. And even though it doesn't look like him, that's his choice. He chose to hide himself, but it's him. And the analogy that's given is you have a king and you want to embrace that king, physically embrace him. It doesn't matter if the king is wearing one robe, no robe, or even a hundred robes. So even if that king is wearing a hundred robes, a hundred royal robes, so he's very large, you're embracing a hundred robes. Nobody's going to say you didn't embrace the king, you embraced his robes. No, you embraced him. He's in the robes, somewhere in there. (laughs) When we embrace God, Yes, he chose to invest himself 
in the laws of the Torah. And while it looks like robes, it just looks like some sort of external um, information. It's really him that we're embracing and that we're bringing into our lives. Any thoughts, reflections, comments, questions? Okay. Okay. Let's take a look on page 381. The last bold paragraph. It's a long paragraph, but I think it's a very important paragraph. The last bold paragraph on 381. Being that my mind and soul root are too inadequate and adequate to become genuine and con- to become a genuine and consistent chariot or tabernacle for God's non-dual oneness. Right, I'm not on the level of the patriarchs where my mind and heart can actually fathom this and experience this. Since my mind can't grasp or understand him in any way at all, with any thought system in the world, not even a tag end of the grasp of the patriarchs or prophets, I don't, I can't even get to the feet of what the prophets get. Prophets get. This being the case, so what am I going to do? I shall make myself a chariot for him and firm place for his resting in a different way, through the immersion in Torah study. Scheduling fixed times for study, day and night, according to the time that's available for me. So taking time, having set times to study Torah, making Torah study a permanent part of our lives, brings God into our lives in a permanent setting. having permanent study sessions, even if they're short, but daily. Once in the morning, once in the evening, this permanently brings God into our lives. It's going to be in a different way than the patriarchs did. Patriarchs experienced it emotionally. We're going to experience it differently through the median of Torah. Let's take a look. Uh, I'm going to share the screen here. Oh, I can't share the screen. Okay. I'm not going to share the screen. Uh, well, do you? Maybe I can share. What, what is it? It's the, um, it's the source sheet that I texted out on the group. If you, have to, if you happen to have your phones with you. Um, yeah, I, I just yeah, need, I'm gonna to, lose uh, you. I need mm-hmm. to send it to my laptop first, and then uh, I can share it. Okay. If you have your phone out, we could just we'll just read it. Um, if you happen to have your phone Wait, out, when did you text it? Today. This was today at about three thirteen. So John, Otherwise, you want to grant permission for question for you, Rabbi Josh? Yeah, go for it. Is listening to a uh, podcast on Torah? Is that Torah study? Definitely. Yep. Definitely. Well, good. <laughs> Definitely. So for those of you who, who hit traffic, I mean, these days traffic is like, you know, but you're driving around and you're, that's, that's Torah study. 
Definitely. Right now, this is Torah study also. It's Torah study about Torah study. <laughs> okay, if you have your phone, um, if you have it on your phone or if you somewhere, I'm, I'm going to read text one. I'm Are you about, about to share it? Yeah. Okay. Hopefully, I'll get it right this time. I tried sharing last week, and then when I saw the recording, I saw I didn't share it. Um, let's see. So just once I share it, let me know if you... It's coming. It's there. Okay. There we go. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Great. Okay. Text one from Hayom um, Yom. Thanks, John. Can you expand that on your screen, though? Let me yeah, see you just you just... Uh, you just have to better. make it yeah. yeah and then make it make the text larger <laughs> i'll try uh how that's gone you might have to just zoom in or just it's it's uh, a I screenshot on a phone oh oh is that better oh, there we go that's perfect that's perfect and okay. which, which which number should i focus on the first one perfect yeah, yeah. perfect okay so this is an excerpt from hayom yom the fourth of cheshvan Studying Torah every day critically affects our lives. Not only the soul of the person studying, but the souls of his household as well. For then the atmosphere in the home is one of Torah and the fear of God. So when we study Torah, we house God not only into our own lives, but into the home in which we're studying it in. It impacts the home environment. Okay, I'm going to skip text two for now. Um, I'll tell you a story. Here's the story. So when... We've mentioned this several times. When, when the Al-Tarebbe, the author of the Tanya... Um, started spreading his teachings. In general, when the Hasidic movement took off, it was very controversial amongst mainstream Judaism because it was new. Not that it invented anything that didn't exist in Judaism, but it was emphasizing things that haven't really been emphasized. It looked kind of new, novel, and people were scared. People were nervous. There was also a whole philosophical um, debate, whether it's philosophically in line with traditional Jewish thought or not. So there was a lot of controversy. And the, the group of people who were controversers, I don't know if that's a word or not, controversers. Controverts? Is that the word? Controverts? Uh, I kind of just no, made it up. That, that's not a real sounds word. Good. No? Controversers? Uh, how about we're, who were the opposition? Okay, the, the opposing Oppos group. Yeah. The opposers. They were called misnagdim. Or mitnagdim. Oh, I've Oppo heard that before. Opposers. Yeah. The al was took many debates with them. And these days it doesn't really exist and in, in in that context, there's generally peace in Judaism, thank God. But the Altar, so the Altar is having a discussion with them, and they say 
what did Hasidic teachings bring to the table? This is what they asked the Alter Rebbe. They're challenging him. Why is there a need for Hasidus, for Hasidic teachings, like Tanya and others? What did that bring to the table that didn't exist already? So the Alter Rebbe responds, having set times for Torah study, set to- having set Torah study sessions. So he laughs. He says, what do you mean? Jews have been having set Torah study sessions for as long as we can remember. We have set Torah study sessions every day in our communities without Hasidic teachings. And the Alter Rebbe responds, no, 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 no. I don't just mean set, a set time. I mean set in your soul. Something that can make meaningful, that you can really relate to, that you can appreciate on an emotional level and on a behavioral level, not just on an intellectual level. Not just studying information, but seeing the Torah as a guide for life. Hasidus has opened up our lives to experiencing that. And the idea is having a set time for Torah study and having a set session, a session where we really set what we learn or becomes a set part of us. This makes our own personal world, our homes, our neighborhoods, we'll keep branching out into a home for God. By the way, just real quick, I looked up Miss Nagdim and it, several sites define it as opponent. Opponent, okay. Opponent. Perfect. Let's take a look on the bottom of 382. No, sorry, not the bottom, but the, the middle of 382. It's the third paragraph on the page, second bold paragraph of the page. And this should cheer your heart and cause you to rejoice, giving thanks to your lot in life with joy and gladness of heart. For meriting when you study a single chapter twice a day to be a host for the Almighty, like the Holy Temple, according to the limits of your available time and according to the opportunities lavished upon you by God. Torah study is an opportunity for us to house God in our lives. This should be very motivating. This should infuse our studies with joy, with simcha, because there's a great sense of purpose here and meaning. That I have an opportunity to make a home for the king. It's, if, if, if we just meditate upon that, on that for a second, that's powerful. Who, who am I? <laughs> Someone like me, like us, who are we? Has an opportunity and a responsibility to make this world, in our own world, a home for God, to make a Beis HaMikdash. That's huge. Because think about it. The Beis HaMikdash, which was built by King Solomon, where Jews flocked to for the pilgrimage, thousands of Jews, for the services, for the offerings, the spiritual experience that they had there throughout the holidays on Yom Kippur, we can have all of that 
just by studying Torah. That's very powerful. We don't see what we're accomplishing just by studying Torah. When Mashiach comes, we will see what we're accomplishing. We will see what we would have accomplished, but we don't see it yet. But what we're doing is incredible. Bottom line, the inspiration we have, it's not enough just to be inspired about Judaism. We actually have to do something with that inspiration. So there's the inspiration that comes from the meditation. I've meditated, I thought about the how God is with me and I'm close to God and I'm feeling the joy and I'm feeling the inspiration, the power and I'm a proud Jew. Okay, great. What do I do with that inspiration? There's a soul, but where's the body to house it? That's the Torah study. And that's why, John, if you could share the screen again one more time, we're going to take a look at text three on the screen. Okay, text three is an excerpt from Shulchan Aruch. And here's what it says. Shulchan Aruch is the Jewish code of law. The optimum manner of fulfilling the mitzvah of studying Torah by day is to establish this time directly after the morning prayers before one goes about his affairs. So ideally, it's after you pray, you study. And we'll discuss the significance of this in a minute. Indeed, whoever proceeds from the synagogue to the base Hamidrash, to the house of study, in order to study, will be found worthy of greeting the divine presence. As it is written, they shall proceed from strength to strength and appear before God in Zion. So right after prayer, we study. What's the point in prayer? What is the, the, the goal in prayer? To prepare you for studying. To prepare ourselves to study, because prayer is all about awakening our souls. Yeah. yeah, to elevate ourselves, to become more conscious of our relationship with God. Prayer is a me- is a tool to become more aware of our relationship with God. It's a meditation. It's a guided meditation in which to inspire ourselves. As we meditate and think about the greatness of God, think about our dependence on Him, that's prayer. After prayer, we should be on fire if we do it right. Is, now we need it, to take that fire and study Torah. We need to take that fire and ignite something. So it's not just a fleeting flame, but it's a practical flame that actually does something. And that's the Torah study afterwards. Is there um, something about studying relevant things in Torah and not just studying everything in Torah? So what's relevant and to integrate it into your own life? Good, good question. Because you can just study and it's like, it doesn't mean anything because you're not integrating. Good question. Well, I, I have a follow-on question to that, which is um, in addition to just uh, studying Torah, can you study like even something short like Hayom Yom to satisfy that? Okay, good, good question. Ideally, look, if you, could, if you study something relevant, that's even better because you get the advantage of not only bringing God into your world, but it actually brings God into your world in a very meaningful way. And it could be long, it could be short, it could be something. But um, even if it doesn't seem practically relevant, it still has value because it's God's will that we're learning about. 
and that we're physically understanding or intellectually understanding with our minds. But if you can make it relevant and if you could find something relevant, so now you get an even, you know, you get the advantage of it being meaningful. So definitely it, it better, better if it's something relevant and meaningful for sure. But even if it's not, or if even if you don't yet see the relevance, um, it still has value that we might not be aware of. Because one day, like I was doing a Torah study and it was about fruit and what kind of fruits. And it was like, I didn't, and it wasn't relevant. And it was right. like, I kind of felt like a waste of my life. <laughs> right. So it's, it's not instructional in that sense. It's, but it it's wasn't still un- pertaining to me or to anything that, I mean, the fruits of Israel, which is beautiful and it's nice to know, but it's not going to change right. my life. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, to, to clarify my question. So um, I think something we looked at before, maybe the last paragraph yeah it said according to the limits of your available time so somebody might feel that they don't have time to study at all because they're thinking like study a whole parsha so if you just study something really short like usually hayom yom is really short yeah i mean look you have to be it boils down to your own integrity you have to be honest with yourself and see how much time you have um well to everybody prevent- everybody has time to study something it might be one verse, might be a, a couple lines of Hayom Yom, it might be. But if somebody thinks of it as just studying and they think I don't have time, but if they put it down to, I'll do something really short, then they're more likely to at least study something rather than completely abandon Yeah, yeah. Every amount is valuable. No amount is going to be too little or too much. It's like a donation. No, okay. <laughs> no amount. That's true. I mean, just put in a coin into the. Put a coin in the stock. Yeah, yeah. No amount is too little, too small. You know, after the korbanos, after the offerings, the offerings were done with fire. That's the elevation. That's the inspiration. But after the offerings in the temple, they had the libations, just pouring the water. After you go up with that inspiration, you have to come back down. That's the water coming down, the, the water libations, the water pouring surface. After we have that inspiration, that excitement, the joy, we have to come back down practically. And that's studying Torah. Okay. The chapter then says, continues, and says, not only Torah study, but also tzedakah, charity. Charity also brings God into this world. And by the way, what we're discussing right now, we're going to elaborate on extensively um, in chapter 37. But what happens when you give charity, you know, even if you only give 10% or 20%, right, the tithings, it's as if you gave everything to God. When you give that 10% to God, that 20% to God, it's as if you gave everything to God. Because what would happen is, just like when you, um, it says in the Talmud that tzedakah, charity, is like an offering. And when you would offer an animal to God, all of animal life was elevated. When you offered a bread offering to God, all of grain life, vegetation, is elevated. 
So similarly with charity, when you offer a little bit of charity to God, all of that charity, all of the money that you have, even though you didn't give it all to God, is elevated. Not only the portion that you gave, but all of it. So now God not only lives in your mind with Torah study and in your home, but he lives in your occupation. The blood, sweat, and tears that we put in to make a buck or two, a couple of shekels, when we give some of that to God, the entire thing becomes holy. Not only that, in order to go to work, in order to make that money to give the charity, you have to eat. Now that food becomes holy. You have to sleep. Now that sleep becomes holy. You have to exercise because you have to be healthy. Now that exercise becomes holy. You have to have a home, a comfortable home to live in. So you can facilitate that, that becomes holy because it's all part of your ability to serve God. You have a nice office, a comfortable office chair, a high-speed internet, a good Wi-Fi, and a, and a, and a very fast computer. All these things are contributing to your ability to make money, to be able to give some of that to charity. It all becomes holy. Making that money enables you to study more Torah. It all becomes holy. So it's not just that Torah study that becomes holy. It's not just that bit of charity that becomes holy. It's everything dragged along with it. There's so much opportunity in life. Perhaps more than there ever was. To make our world a home for God. And you could thank the Romans for destroying the base of Mikdash. <laughs> I mean that facetiously to some degree. But exile created opportunity. Not that we want exile. We don't want exile. The point is to get out of exile. But, you know, when the base of Mikdash was destroyed, Rabbi Akiva says the Talmud was laughing while all the, the other rabbis were crying. Because while the destruction was sad and while exile is horrible, exile really is difficult. It's hard to lead a Jewish life in exile. Especially in the Tri Valley, <laughs> it's not um, it's not the holy city of Brooklyn. <laughs> it's not even South Africa. It's very. It's not even L.A. It's it can but it's be, not Mountain House. It's not even Mountain House. <laughs> <laughs> it could be very challenging, but there's so much opportunity because of that challenge. To bring God to the far corners of the world. Tonight is a very special day, special night. Tonight is the third of Tammuz. The third of Tammuz is the day where we lost the physical presence of the Lubavitcher Rebbe 26 years ago. Today, where his full energy is 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 present, or <clears throat> we can tap into that mission that we're all a part of in making this world a home for God, 
starting with our own homes, starting with our own minds and hearts, starting with wherever we are. We have opportunity. The, the, that's really how the Rebbe saw exile, saw life. This was the Rebbe's viewpoint. A challenge is opportunity. You know, the famous joke, they say, is that a there was a Hasidic Jew who was sentenced to hell. And he begs his Rebbe, get me out of here, save me. The Rebbe pulls him out by his payas, by his side locks, saves him. A Lubavitcher, Chabad rabbi, is sent to hell for whatever he did. And he turns to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, save me, help me. The Rebbe hands him a dollar. Good luck on your mission. <laughs> Light it up. <laughs> Make it a better place. <laughs> That, that is really what the Rebbe lived for. And that's really what the essence of Tanya is. Discovering the beauty within our own souls. Discovering the beauty within another soul. Discovering the beauty within the world. And infusing the world with light. And I'm just, just to conclude, I'm, I'm reminded of a fascinating insight. You know, the, the, the Rebbe had a true positivity bias. And there's a book, Positivity Bias, some of you might be familiar with. It's a new book that came out within the last year or two. Positivity Bias, which are short, a bunch of short stories um, showing the Rebbe's positivity bias that he had and how we can learn from that. It's a, it's a really good book. I like it because if, if you're, like, this is a trade secret. You're wondering where I get a lot of my stories from. <laughs> the Positivity Bias is a great book. The stories. Was that, was that written by, so there's Chabad rabbi in Santa Clara who a couple weeks ago, he had something, session about positivity and I think his mother in Florida hosted it. And I think she had written a book. Is that possibly... No, no, that's not. This is a Rabbi Kalmanson from England. Oh, okay. Um, it's check it's it out. really good. It's just expensive. I think it was $80. What? Wow. You get it on Amazon. Okay, I have to check that out. Are you sure? I paid $80 for it. It was very good. I mean, Did I'm enjoying it. stock in the, in the company? <laughs> it, it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> now worth 160 Okay. Yeah. We have to check that out because I thought I got it cheaper, but... So, you probably did before COVID. Or maybe that's what it is, COVID prices. So yeah. the part of the Rebbe's positivity bias, this week's Torah portion, Korach. Who was Korach? Korach is known as an evil person, an argumentative person who created divisiveness amongst the Jewish people in the desert, who publicly opposed Moses, and he never repented. And God punished him. He, he never repented. And the Rebbe asks, how do we name a Torah portion after a wicked person? And we call the Torah portion the Parsha of Korach. That is, if you can get a Torah portion named after you, you must be very special. Well, aren't there also several um, Tehillim that start with his name? With, with Korach as well. So this guy gets 
pretty good recognition for an evil sinner. How does such an evil person get such recognition, naming a Torah portion after him? How could that be? Well, perhaps it's an example of how not to be. You know, it was like, here's the textbook example of how not okay. to be. Okay, so it's definitely an opportunity to learn from. But or, ideally, we're supposed to, as much as possible, even avoiding mentioning the names of truly wicked people. If somebody's a truly wicked well, person. He obviously wasn't truly wicked, so he's, that's why he's okay. Okay, per, <laughs> perhaps. The, and, and well, that, he, he wasn't wicked. I mean, he, he, he was very knowledgeable in Torah. He just... Uh, only issue was when he, he became an opponent. So okay, so, good, good. So, so that's the Rebbe's positivity bias. Behaviorally, he was wicked. He did something he shouldn't have done. But let's look a little bit deeper. He wasn't w- uh, intentionally wicked. He was confused. What was his complaint? Why the hierarchy in Judaism? There are the Levites, the priests, the high priests. Isn't God within everybody? He didn't understand what truly makes peace. Is the fact that we're all different. What brings beauty to the world is that we're all different. He was focusing on our commonalities, not on our differences. The difference between the two. Focusing on our commonalities, on our similarities, that's love. And he was all about love. But you can't ignore the differences because then there's a lack of respect. And while he wanted love, he forgot that you also need respect. But the Rebbe has this positivity bias. We're naming a portion after him because there is good in him. He had a positive drive. It was just misguided. And seeing this positive drive, seeing the positivity even within the most wicked of people is crucial toward bringing God into this world. Because if we could see goodness within ourselves, we could see goodness within others. And if we could see goodness within others, we could see goodness within the world. We could bring goodness to the world. We could bring Mashiach. We could make this world a place that is more God-conscious. A place that is more divine, a place that is more holy, ultimately through our actions and tipping that scale. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Good story. Okay, so I will stop the recording.